You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. You're listening to Rashkin Report. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. My next guest is Dr. Ivan Kurilla. Dr. Kurilla is a professor at European University in St. Petersburg and a specialist both on history and on American-Russian relations. Dr. Kurilla, Russia is frequently referred to as a country with unpredictable past. What does that expression mean to you? And in general, how does Russia address its deep political problems? When somebody wants uh, to go public and to speak about the deep uh, political uh, problems, he starts by speaking about the old Russian history. And uh, that's why uh, we still uh, have uh, unresolved problems uh, with a deep historical past. We still uh, frame our political disagreements uh, in a historical argument about Ivan the Terrible, of course, about Joseph Stalin, about Mikhail Gorbachev and Perestroika, about the 1990s, about the uh, past as you know, as uh, deep as you know, Prince Vladimir of the 10th century AD, and it's still you know it's still there, it's still here because uh, this is the only uh, available language to speak about the political disagreements. And that's why we have an uh, unpredictable past, because the past uh, in such uh, arguments is a function of the present, because the, uh, the past in these uh, disputes and these arguments is always a result of, of uh, contemporary projections. And that's why we continue, with, well, that's why we, are, we live in such a country. You know, uh, as a historian, I'm uh, I may be both disappointed and very interested uh, to wait for another politician to speak something about the past, and it's always uh, you know, a, a rich material to analyze, but for the country, for the public discourse, it's actually really a uh, pity situation, because we need to develop the different language to speak about the, the, the politics. We need to develop language that is not just, uh, you know, speak about the past, but the language about the future, language about the values, uh, ideals, uh, and that is actually what, what we lack. All right, there's, there's been several things, uh, Dr. Carilla, that, that you've hit on. So, um, <clears throat> well, I guess first to quite to look at the the scale of to which the the history can change i think as you started in the beginning you know every generation rewrites uh, history a little bit and makes adjustments and learns more and and historical figures perhaps emerge more complex and perhaps interesting and you know although it seems like certain things like you know i'm looking at the united states you know certain administrations seems to kind of change depending on who is power is in power at the time looking back and how history has played out there's there's a lot of factors um but 
in uh, in Russia that the difference can be rather drastic between how we view a certain uh, leader now or in five years or in 10 years. And it doesn't even depend necessarily on a new person being in power or being in charge. There's just, uh, it, it seems like these winds are blowing and uh, how do these changes even occur? Is it a matter of a new politician, political leader coming out, not even new, but another one coming out and saying something different and all of a sudden all the books need to be rewritten or is there bigger waves that are at play? What uh, moves these uh tectonic shifts so swiftly across Russian historical landscape. Okay, let me start with, uh, I will try to distinguish between two different uh, problems because I I was probably not, not clear enough. I will try to say first, uh, for professional historians, this is also uh, the situation that can be called re- rewriting the history, but yeah, I will first explain what I mean here. Uh, you know, uh, history is a scholarship, history as an academic field, is always a dialogue. It's a dialogue between the contemporary societies and the societies of the past. And this is a dialogue where we ask the questions and the past gives us an answers, the answers. And this dialogue is changing, definitely changing because the contemporary societies are changing and because the new generation has their own, has their own uh, questions to ask the past and the historians are interested in a different uh, problems and, uh, or maybe of the same events but they ask you know, different questions to the same events and this is good, this is how the historical science, or history as art and academic field is developing with the new questions being asked and new books written about you know, you know how many books were written about the like, French Revolution or about the Russian revolutions of 1917? So already, uh, you know, thousands and will be more uh, for them, you know, in the future. But uh, what you're asking, uh, actually, not about the history as academic field, but history as a public discourse and history as uh, politicians uh, use it. And this is a, a bit different uh, problem, a different situation. And uh, this is about the histor- so-called historical narratives, historical narrations, which uh, is included in the school uh, history textbooks, which, inclu- which is included in the public memorials and included in the uh, public speeches of uh, political leaders. And this history is rewritten. This uh, school text- textbooks is being, being changed constantly. And this is bad. This is not a, about the scholarship. This is not about academic question, questions uh, which are changing. This is about uh, the view on the history as a political tool. I guess I'm also going back to some of those old Soviet encyclopedias that were published during Stalin's time, where those that were holding them would get like letters or some kind of notifications saying that now please rip out page 35 and rip out the picture on page 47. You know that yes, kind exactly, of exactly. Control. This is uh, this is more like Orwellian uh, attitude to the to the past. When you can change the past as soon as uh, today's situation is changed, has been changed. But you know we we have a very drastic changes in even in the history textbooks. We have uh, I don't know if you uh, well okay. You, of course, your listeners do, do not do not know, but we had a. Uh, during the whole Soviet and even post-Soviet period, we had one of the high points of the Russian history, pre-revolutionary, 19th century Russian history, the Decembrist Rebellion. It was the first attempt of Russian uh, liberal-minded uh, nobility 
to you know to change the way the Russia is ruled, and they you know, raised a rebellion in December of 1825, and the rebellion was smashed. Uh, several people were uh, you know were executed. Um, tens, uh, hundred were sent to Siberia. So that was a very important part of the Russian uh, event in Russian history, and we always remember it with, uh, with veneration, with a deep esteem to the first liberal attempt, to the first attempt to get rid of autocracy, to change the Russian uh, state into more, if not democratic, full, fully democratic, but at least less some, uh, auto- autocratic uh, way of, of, of you know, I will just jump in there quickly for for a reference point. There is a there is a well known band, the Decemberists, and uh, Decemberists. And uh, I just looked it up. They actually did use the the Russian Dikabristi as as part as the reason for their name. So uh, there's there's one kind of way to promote. Yes, history. Uh, and why uh, talking about uh, this? Just because uh, we have. Uh, a very clear uh, anti-revolutionary turn in Russian policy, uh, politics, uh, well, which started, I, I guess, uh, after the uh, events in Ukraine uh, 12 years ago, in the so-called Orange Revolution of uh, 2004. And after that, we received, we, we get even uh, school textbooks which describe disembrace and the dangerous plotters, uh, those who wanted to... Uh, So, so are the Decemberists of 1821 are good now? Or are they yeah, in now? some, you know, this is a, a change. There are some uh, textbooks, and maybe still majority, which continue to describe it as a noble cause, their the ideas as a noble cause. But there is also at least one textbook which describes them as a very dangerous people who wanted to only back to Russia. So this anti-revolutionary trend in the current Russian policies is projected into the textbooks and projected into explaining what was happening with Russia. And we are, yeah, we are. So, so, so another way, if uh, if the current government is afraid of revolution, then any revolutionary of the past is bad. Exactly. Exactly, this is what, what they wanted okay. to do. That's why it's very interesting. We're still waiting uh, for, you know, next year will be the centennial of Russian Revolution of 1917. We all are waiting what will be said uh, by, by their uh, political leaders for that, for that celebration, because it's a very hard uh, choice. On the one hand, okay, uh, the current regime is very anti-revolutionary, openly anti-revolutionary, but on the other hand, 1917 was a, a well was an important event which uh, made a legitimacy to the whole uh, succession of, of, of people after them, uh, the whole state. Now, even even after 1991, the whole Russian state still uh, inherited uh, many many of its features to the 1917 events. So we will see how the, uh, President Putin and his advisors, historical advisors, uh, like Minister of Culture Medinsky, will, will uh, set that problem. But yeah, but generally the regime uses history not as an uh, academic field. They use it as a propaganda tool. And I just mentioned Medinsky. He's Minister of Culture and also the head of uh, Russian Society for Military History and one of the major uh, you know, open you know, spokesperson about the historical politics. And he repeatedly uh, said that uh, history is not a uh, scholarship. History should be a useful myth. And if the myth uh, that 
uh, well, is not uh, is the miss is, is dangerous or uh, you know in deter- detrimental to Russian interest. So historians should not develop that that part of uh, scholarship. They're not, and this is a very anti uh, well, anti historical. I would say historians are. You know, I, I would I would almost have to disagree with you only because what I'm hearing in this is that the, uh, what uh, Secretary Minister Medinsky is saying to me is that he's acknowledging the importance of history and how dangerous it is and how careful we have to be with it. Yeah, in, in, um, in his own way. A, in his own way, but, but he yeah. wants to, to solve that. Well, he sees a danger in history and how he wants to solve that danger is just to... Uh, prohibit historians to do uh, certain certain things. He just openly said, I remember I was I presented in some of the conferences that Medinsky also attended. And Medinsky said, you know, if you or Russian historians will discover something in the documents, let's say, for instance, that, you know, Kuril Islands should belong to Japan, uh, of course you should hide it. You should be on the interest, with the interest of the state. You should, you, of course, you should not develop uh, this uh, investigation further. And this is very anti-historical, very anti-scientific, I would say, very anti, you know, and this is... But I, th- I think this is what passes in today's Russia for patriotism. Uh, well, yes, this is, well, how, how they understand patriotism, but I, I, I would disagree here. But but that's a it's a different conversation. Let's let's reset this and take a look a little bit more at, at the exciting Russian history, which uh, um, it c- continues to excite Russia to this day. You're listening to WSUW ninety one point seven FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Yuri Rashkin, and this is Rashkin Report. Um, my guest today is uh, Professor Doctor Ivan Kurillo, who is a professor at European University at Saint Petersburg in Russia, and we're speaking about. The excitement of Russian history. As you mentioned, uh, next year is going to be a hundred year anniversary of, um, Soviet revolution and, uh, position of Vladimir Lenin has never, I think, seemed more uncertain because Vladimir Putin seems to come out with uh, comments against, critical of Lenin, and so people are wondering what consequences will this have? Will the mausoleum finally get rid of its, you know, permanent uh, resident, or or what's going to happen? How do you see Lenin's place in today's Russia? Yeah, this is uh, very interesting uh, question, you know, uh, when I grew up, uh, when well, it was still the Soviet Union, and uh, Lenin uh, was considered to be you know, the founder of the state and much more important figure than, for instance, Stalin. And if you look on the history, uh, historical discourses in, in Russia now, Lenin is so, you know, secondary figure uh, compared to Stalin. That you, you know, the 20th century Russian history is focused uh, on the Stalin much more than it's, it used to be focused uh, early on, on Lenin. So Lenin uh, is Lenin's role and Lenin's importance in Russian history uh, in, in the public view, in the public uh, appreciation, decreased decreased significantly. And now this is not 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 uh, as important figure as, as it used to be. And this that's why yeah we will see what what will be what will. Happened in nineteen seven or oh, in two thousand seventeen and twenty seventeen, uh, and maybe when this uh, some decision about mausoleum will be t- uh, will be taken. But on the other hand, uh, from my point of view, you know, the President Putin is uh, very from the very beginning he is very uh, attentive to the symbolic part of his of politics. He is very he was very attentive to historical politics. He used 
uh, important events of Russian history, especially the Second World War, Great Patriotic War in Russian uh, understanding. Uh, he used it uh, can constantly uh, in his speeches, in his appearance, public appearance. So it was very important. Symbolic part of the politics was very important for him. And from this point of view, uh, the uh, burying uh, the you know, taking Lenin's body from mausoleum and burying somewhere in the cemetery is uh, a very important symbolic step. You know, it's uh, the change, any change in these great symbols uh, we uh, inherited from the 20th century is itself very, very important symbolic uh, step. So it, it is possible, but it is possible only under condition that a current regime will need to do some something very important symbolically. It may be it may be the actually the crisis uh, if uh, there is a way to uh, divert public attention from crisis. It may be the diversion of, from from economic hardship to symbolic uh, arguments. You know, we had uh, several uh, very clear uh, examples of this diverting of the public uh, public attention from from uh, corruption from economic hardship to to symbolic things uh, recently especially after 2012 uh, and uh, but you know mausoleum and lenin uh, lenin's body fate is something very important and if it will be any decision will be taken any, any change will be taken it will immediately produce a huge huge uh, you know argument and uh, clashes between communist or pro-communist part of Russian society or those who don't who still believe uh, you know in, in the importance of Lenin and Mazolov and those who will say that well this is a good thing to do and uh, you know this is this type of, of symbolic gesture gesture uh, you know uh, I don't think that regime will waste it just for for a symbolism it will be taken at the moment when anything you know, when when uh, the public attitude to, to the regime will be dangerous for for, for for it, and you know, at least this is my prediction. I we, we will see how it will develop, but this is my uh, take on this question. So, should we see something happen? That is definitely a sign of big things yes, happening. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let let me ask you this, since it's such an I, I consider an opportunity to speak to a specialist in Russian history. Uh, there's a rumor, myth, legend. I don't even know how to describe it. That uh, the reason that Lenin is in mausoleum in the first place is because uh, Stalin, uh, you know, just wanted to get back at him and wouldn't bury his body. Is there any truth to that from your historical perspective, or is this just kind of a you know old wives' tale? kind of a thing. Okay. Uh, well, actually, I'm not a historian of that uh, particular part of the Russian history. And, you know, uh, I'm, uh, so I, I cannot uh, support this, uh, you know, this story. You cannot story. put this yeah, to rest. Or I, no, I can, I can uh, deny it. So it's not just, it was just not my, my field. I did not see the documents or any memoirs about that. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, well, if I don't think it's that actually uh, story is really important. It's more like a historical anecdote. It's a lot of stories which are interesting, but uh, which are, do not change our understanding or our take on this uh, or that event in, in, in our history. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, the re the relationship between 
Russia and uh, United States um, is in such a uh, well. It, it's just a mess right now. It doesn't sound like uh, America is interested. You know, America, especially during the presidential campaign, is mostly using Russia as a punching bag. And uh, Russia seems to be playing its own game. Um, can this situation ever get fixed? And it, Or is it just a matter of until Putin is gone, it's going to be a mess? Well, uh Okay, boss. Uh, I mean, yes, on both uh, on both questions. <laughs> okay, let let me say this is mm-hmm. a, again interesting, another interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, well, I consider myself I consider myself as a historian of Russian American relations, uh, uh, constructivist. Well, this is a methodology which uh, explain uh, the mutual uh, image construction of two societies of two countries, how Americans look into Russia and how Russians look at America is a uh, result of, mostly result of the internal political struggle. Of course, uh, the other country uh, provide some, you know, some basis for one or another image construction, but usually any country, including Russia and including the United States, uh, provide a very broad spectrum of uh, of its own images, but uh, it's about the other country, another society, which uh, make a choice, which is important and which what is important and what is not. And from this point of view, you are, you are very right when you say that the uh, presidential campaign uh, is just a very very clear example how Americans are using Russia as a you said a punching bag. It's it's always like that, and it's used to be. If you remember, like previous presidential campaign, when Mitt Romney said that Russia was a uh, you know, major geopolitical force of the United States. It was said actually before Ukrainian events, before Crimea. So it was still in the situation when the relations between Russia and the United States were relatively good. Why Mitt Romney said that? Not because he wanted to say anything about Russia. Not because he actually uh, was, uh, you know, thinking about Russia a lot. He wanted to uh, to punch. Uh, his major rival, President Obama, and for Obama, the reset policy, the you know, uh, the some type of uh, rapprochement between Russia and the United States was uh, one of the major uh, achievements of his first presidential uh, presidential term. That's why Mitt Romney uh, wanted to punch uh, President Obama, but he did it uh, by saying that Russia was a geopolitical force. And this is how the image of the other country is developing. We, we you know, okay, both, let me both, then we, ask we, you. Uh, Americans are using the other country as a, you know, as a tool in the internal political struggle, but, by, you know, as a byproduct of this internal political struggle, we receive these images of the other country. And unfortunately, for a long time, both Russia and the United States uses the other country as a, you know, as a scarecrow, much more than it's, uh, you know, uh, than it's deserved. Both of us are deserved. That's that's a fascinating point because it basically well I mean it makes sense because uh, you know whether it's Mitt Romney or Barack Obama or any presidential candidate they're concerned about obtaining power in this exactly. country and so they so they're going to say what the electorate of this country wants to hear 
uh, versus the, you know, they're less concerned about what impression they're going to make on the Russian population, for instance, or, or even Vladimir Putin. They're concerned about winning the yes, next exactly. primary. Well, I can, I can give you an example. Well, not quite, not very, not, not totally symmetrical, but still, uh, well, uh, to the same point about Russian, Russian side. Uh, we, you know, what we, we are now in the situation of the very high anti-American feelings here in Russia. And, uh, well, and there are two major factors to my, to my mind, what, what, uh, what that contributed to this anti-Americanism. And the first factor is actually governmental propaganda. And why the government, uh, was so, uh, clearly anti-American and actually, actually they be, became so openly and, you know, fiercely, I would say, anti-American. Quite recently, again, well, some will, will say it started in Munich uh, speech in 2007, but mostly it's, uh, again, after 2012, uh, all of this anti-Americanism in, in, in state propaganda. And why? Uh, just because, uh, well, uh, that was a threat to the regime. Uh, the protest uh, after the elections of 2011 and 2012, the Duma and presidential elections, you know, it was a time of when many Russians went to, the pro- to protest it. Uh, to protest the rigged or fraudulent uh, elections. Uh, and actually, that was a real threat to the current regime. And what the regime wanted to say, it wanted to alienate those who protested. It wanted to alienate people, part of the Russian people, who did not like this type of, of uh, political regime, this growing authoritarianism. And how to do it? You know, there was a very simple uh, you know, mechanism, that, but that included two... That includes two parts of it. First, uh, you should say that all those who protested are somehow connected to the United States. They either connected by, you know, travels, by grants, by sympathies, by whatever. And the other part of it, you should also portray the United States as a country which always plotting to destroy Russia, to uh, destroy all, you know, all the Russian ability to survive in the current uh, world. So, uh, it, it, it both uh, factors should 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 be present, and that's why you know anti-Americanism can be understood as an attempt to, as a part of the attempt to alienate uh, protesters within Russia. But this is only one factor of, of, of the current regime. And, but uh, on the other hand, this factor uh, is not is nothing new. We had, uh, if you look back in the Russian history, you will see every time, uh, each time when Russian government, Russian state decided that the major goal of the state is to keep uh, stability, uh, to freeze uh, popular movements, or, you know, to, to stop uh, unrest. Every time. It was during, you know, late Stalin regime. It was uh, during late Nicholas I regime. It was during, you know, late Brezhnev uh, era. Every time. Uh, the United States appeared as a threat, as something that can be, uh, you know, dangerous and, you know, and Russian Russian state propaganda started to, uh, to to portray the United States as a plotter, as somebody very very un-Russian, very anti-Russian. But uh, on the other hand, every time when the Russian state decided that there is a time to reform, there is a time to modernization, there is even even limited modernization. If they can uh, understood the modernization only in technical terms, like to build new industry. But every time, again, during Nicholas I, during Bolsheviks in the 20s and early 30s of the 20th century, during Khrushchev, Gorbachev, and all the reformers, and even during short presidency of uh, Dmitry Medvedev, 
And every time when Russian state proclaimed modernization as its goal, uh, the relation of the Russian state to the United States turned to be uh, positive. Every time they traveled, uh, invited American engineers, traveled to America, brought uh, you know, iPhones or corn or whatever, or steam uh, ships or locomotives in the 19th century. But, you know, every time, and this is a cyclic, cyclic, cyclic uh, development. Now we are in a uh, that's uh, part of the cycle which produces anti-Americanism, but this is not the end. This is not the end. The cycle will change, and eventually, some Russian government will turn again to modernization, to reformist. Uh, uh, probably uh, somebody after Putin, but I will not exclude that even Putin, under some condition, will want to to get back to well, to reforms because of the economic problems, because of the hardship. And so it's, I, I will not totally exclude that even Putin will, will, will uh, get back and to change the policies, which is, of course, not, not very probable, but still not, not excluse, uh, excluded, excluded very end. All right. Professor Kurila, then, how flexible do you feel Vladimir Putin is on his policy at all? Is, are, is there any non-negotiables or is he just uh, kind of waiting for the right deal to, to make a deal on anything, whether it's Lenin's body or, um, you know? I'm anything? sure he, he, is, uh, he can make a deal and probably he is. But he's now in the situation, you know, this is uh, he's under sanctions and well, Russia under sanctions. And I don't see well. Uh, I don't see how uh, how it can be lifted, how the sanctions can be lifted, because you know uh, I don't see uh, Putin uh, getting back with a decision about Crimea, for instance, and that is a major uh, major uh, problem uh, which produces sanctions. So from this point of view, he is not flexible to to, to get back, but he's flexible on any other front, I think, and this is this, this is why. Uh, he may make a deal on probably he is, I know I can guess, I, I don't know exactly, but I can guess that sure. uh, his uh, hopes now in the American uh, political sphere to get somebody uh, much you know, less, less institu- institutionalized uh, in the White House, somebody who, can be re- who will be ready to make deals on his own side, not to, because any, any president of the United States uh, has a lot of checks and balances, you know, and uh, he, institutional, uh, institutionally, any president of the United States will be, um, you know, uh, prevented from making a, you know, big deal with Russia and returning to, to the normality without uh, Russia getting back Crimea. Or, uh, but if there is somebody who is much less institutionalized, much less uh, can, uh, confined by, by checks and of, of the whole institutional culture of, of the United States. This is somebody who is uh, Mr. Putin will, will want to make deal with. And you know, he's personally, on the personal basis, he can produce a uh, good uh, you know, uh, impression. And we all remember when uh, President George W. Bush said that he looked at his eyes and found himself there. So he's, this is a way how he communicates on the personal level. So he will uh, try to, to, to get this, the next president of the United States and to, to, to meet him and to convince, to make a deal with him. Probably he is, this is one of his uh, hopes. But okay, this is my fantasy, of course. I do not know exactly what he's thinking. Or, but, but this is my uh, take, my, my impression of uh, how he... 
Well, it it makes sense because himself, Putin, is fairly unrestricted in what he can do. And so he just needs, I suppose, a partner who is also unrestricted by whether it's checks and balances or morals or ethics or whatever. And and that will allow uh, a deal to be made. Do you feel that throughout history in, in the last whatever period of time we can reasonably discuss here, it's been... Uh, the relationship between Russia, whether it's Soviet Union or Russian Federation, with America has been better, for whatever that means, uh, under a Republican administration or Democratic administration? Or how has the relationship with Russia, from your point of view, has, has been affected by whether there's Democrats in the White House or Republicans? Okay, this is difficult uh, because uh, from the point of view of Russian ruling elites uh, during the Soviet, late Soviet period and during, uh, well, post-Soviet, post-Soviet times, yeah, it's a kind of a, you know, proverbial uh, truth already that Republicans are easier to deal. Because mostly uh, what Russian view, Russian elites view on Republicans, Republicans are more... Uh, well, close to real politique. Uh, they are ready to make deals. They're ready to recognize them to, well, that, okay, uh, that there is nothing important or nothing that America can change into uh, uh, Russian internal or Soviet, uh, back in the 70s, internal politics. So Republicans are easier to, to speak uh, about their like, world affairs, about the international orders, and Republicans are, more, you know, much more ready to uh, to discuss that without interfering into Russian internal problems. And from that point of view, Republicans traditionally, at least this, this is a tradition since probably Richard Nixon, I will not go further, further back, uh, but yeah, from Richard Nixon, it, says it was a tradition. But on the other hand, uh, if you think about the Russian national interest in the wider uh, perspective, you will see that probably uh, many in Russia will support democratic uh, candidates or, you know, traditionally would support democratic dem- Democrats who uh, always were much more concerned about the internal conditions of Russia, uh, Russian drive into democracy or vice versa to autocracy. And it was with, you know, Jimmy Carter who was concerned about dissidents in Russia. It was uh, with you know, current administration, which also was always tried to, to continue its double track and continue to discuss uh, some problems with Russian opposition. And that's uh, actually uh, always uh, a problem for Russian government. Uh, the Russian government do not, does not know what to do with this uh, you know, democratic uh, attention to what is going on inside Russia. And from that point of view, Democrats are more difficult uh, partners for the Russian government. But again, uh, if uh, if uh, I sp- if I would speak only for Russian government, Democrats are better. If I speak for Russia as a whole, I'm not so sure. All right, for you mean for the Russian government, you Repub- mean Republicans yeah, for the are Russian better. government, Republicans are better. But yeah, right. for, for the Russia, not sure. Okay. Um, you're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, this is Yuri Rashkin, and you're listening to Rashkin Report. My guest is Ivan Kurila, who is a professor at European University in St. Petersburg in Russia. And, um, what, what I, here's the, the kind of the, 
the the interesting issue that i see is that on one hand uh russia russian leaders uh distrust democracy i think because they see it as a way for some nefarious uh players to enter the field and under disguise of people's choice try to create some you know just overthrow the old government and introduce new government of the same oligarchs because i think russian government just sees power as you know that's how it is Mm -hmm. but on the other hand you're saying that when they look at obama let's say or any democrat they don't know necessarily what to do with them because they don't play by the same rules uh quite as much because they like to follow laws and they care about ethics and such um how does how do russian government can possibly square it away that it's kind of neither or well you know for again for for russian government uh again this is my my understanding of course i am not a member of russian government so i speak how i how i see them and how i see the, the way of thinking for them, it will it would be easier if uh, American president would only uh, behave as a 19th century leaders who were concerned only about power, uh, power distribution, about the you know, uh, and international law as just a result of the power calculations, and uh, well, and everything which uh, which is of different uh, international tradition, which uh, goes to international law, uh, international organizations. Uh, even even organizations, despite the fact that Russia is uh, still cherish United Nations as a very important uh, tool of Russian foreign policy, but international law in general is much less uh, important for for the Russian rulers, and they do not, uh, you know, do, and and uh, from this point of view, if you look in the world in this 19th century framework. You will guess, you will think that everything which is not about power is just a propaganda. And even democracy is just a propaganda. And even the spread of, you know, spread of free societies is just a tool of so-called soft power, which uh, finally leads to the same result, the domination of the United States in the world arena. And from that uh, point of view, you know, this is, uh, this is a global, you know, global mistrust or global cynicism of, of, of Russian government. Actually, I think that they really do not believe in democracy or do not believe that American spread of democracy is a, a genuine. It's something that it's, well, they're so cynical in their internal politics, they are also cynical about foreign politics. And unfortunately, uh, the Western leaders, well, uh, did produce, uh, in, in many instance, instances, produced uh, this impression. They, you know, they were ready to deal with uh, Russia when Russia was rich, uh, even in the expense of, well, I would not, I would not uh, tell tell you the examples, but well, some of European leaders, you know, who who were ready to to go with, to to work with Russia or you know, international organizations who were ready to to work with Russia and Russia was rich, despite the, all of these uh, problems with uh, democracy, with whatever. So this is was a. Um, one of the arguments that Russian Russian government are. Uh, Do you feel that this this kind of attitude is something that is related to just one person, or is it an underlying issue in the sense that almost no matter who's going to replace Putin, it's going to be the same uh, not trusting approach, cynical approach? No, the one, on the one hand, uh, I, uh, well, I don't think this uh, the, the only 
person that everything in, in the government is uh, just just one person we still well we are very autocracy uh, personalistic autocracy on the one hand but there are still some people around uh, putin who you know who continue who reinforce those uh, attitudes of cynicism and actually the cynicism is already widespread in the russian society as a whole unfortunately we can if you look back in the 15 years uh, since the early 2000 uh, we can see how this cynicism spread and spread. it was spread from Kremlin it was spread from the very top and if the uh, government uh, produce uh, the impression or you know, deliberately uh, propagate the cynicism it spread everywhere uh, and you know uh, there is of course there is Mr Putin but also the whole group of uh, people around him also you know i can you know, just guess uh, this is something probably with uh, with this background of kgb the people who are you know who were trained to deceive or to to you know to use special operations instead of open politics and this is how the russian state is now uh, works in many in many instances how the special services usually does and this is a part of the cynicism and this is well from this point of view i i think that uh, the next uh, well any any next president will will be just forced to change this attitude because uh, well i i i feel already that the people are very tired about this cynicism are very upset about the spread of cynicism everywhere in the russian state i guess that there are somebody with a strong moral uh issue moral attitude can uh, can be very popular in, in today's russia it's just because of this cynicism somebody with a real moral stance with real moral ground in russia would be would be a popular popular leader and i am sure that uh whoever will replace uh, president putin at, at whatever point whatever year uh, he will uh, play with at least you know uh, at least play the person with a moral ground or maybe be the person with uh, better moral grounds this is yeah. i think this is inevit- inevitable it's not <laughs> it is all right um Professor, what do you think about, you know, the, the leader that uh, Putin is, I think, wouldn't mind being compared to as a strong leader is Joseph Stalin. Um, obviously, Joseph Stalin was, uh, uh, well, uh, far more committed to terror than Putin appears to be. Uh, and that's not necessarily, you know, that's a compliment to Putin. Um, but uh, Stalin's uh, anniversary of his passing was just a few days ago. And he is, seems to be as much alive in Russian history and daily conversations and media uh, as ever. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, again, first, well, uh, Stalin has already reappeared as the most important figure of Russian history of the 20th century. Why uh, is another question. And the question, uh, and I would try to answer that, uh, you know, the generation which uh, actually remember stalin and for whom uh, the stalin period was a part of their own lives are pretty senior people already and for those who remember uh, in personal experience remember the uh, gulag or repressions are almost gone this generation is too old already and this is a moment always in history this is a moment when the uh, witnesses are gone this is a period when uh, 
the use of history appears, when the new generations who never uh, lived under Stalin or under as a, as a uh, regime which is used uh, well, in our case Stalin uh, the new generation begin to use uh, this uh, this history uh, for its own political or social purposes and what does it what do I mean when I say use they just uh, find one feature or one description or one projection of the uh, very complex and uh, difficult period of the Russian history and take only one feature which they consider to be important. And they pro- project it as a, you know, as a Stalin. If they say, okay, there is no corruption under Stalin. Was it true? Yes, it was true. Because, partially because of Gulag, because of the communist system, because of many, many different reasons. But, but Well, because, we're, because people were executed for yeah, petty exactly. theft. People were executed. But, uh, well, the person who used this only one, actually one phrase, that there was no corruption under Stalin, he doesn't actually take any other features of, of those epochs. And he say, and he used it to criticize the current regime. You know, a big portion of uh, contemporary Stalinists in Russia are people critical to the current regime, because current regime is widely believed is very corrupt. And they use... So, so it's like Putin wants to say that this suit fits me, of, you know, the next, you know, Stalin too. And the Stalinists are saying, no, he was way more of a man than you will ever be. Uh, well, I would not say that uh, Putin, uh, you know, trying this Stalin suit. You will say that he is very cautious about that. He never uh, praised Stalin. He condemned uh, uh, repressions under Stalin. He, well, he just hinted several times. He used uh, one or another phrase of Stalin in his speeches, but that was enough for a Stalinist to say that Putin is, uh, or, or an anti-Stalinist uh, in Russia, it was enough for for, for, for them to, to claim that Stalin is back. But if you look uh, on the, if you see uh, or you know, listen all the Putin's uh, speeches, he never praised Stalin. He never said that Stalin was good. Was good. You know, it was interesting. Uh, last year, 2015, was very interesting in this from this point of view. We had several examples of uh, erection of Stalin's uh, monuments, uh, monuments to Stalin in Russia. And that was for the first time since uh, Khrushchev destalinization campaign. First, uh, you know, first monuments to Stalin in more than 50 years. It was first in uh, in Yalta, Crimea, okay, uh, with this monument by Tseretelli to Big Three, to Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. But then it was Lipetsk, where the local communists directed the Stalin statue, and all and many others. And what uh, followed that? In August of 2015, the government issued a, uh, a decree uh, to enforce uh, the conception of uh, memorial, memorialization of the victims of memory of the victims of Stalinist repressions. So the government made a very clear signal that it, it's not uh, happy about this re-Stalinization. And this was very interesting. So I would not say that Kremlin or government are happy with getting Stalin back. This is something strange because many people are considered that uh, Russian state are moving into direction direction of, of Stalinism or returning to Stalin-Soviet Union. And actually, this uh, widespread feelings was probably behind those erection of Stalin monument. I'm sure that it was a decision made on some level, uh, middle level uh, officials, bureaucrats, you know, deputies, communist deputies, 
governors, uh, but not on the top level, because, you know, for top level is not, not happy about restabilization, while at the same time, yes, you should, you're right that uh, country more and more res, uh, resembles, at, at some of its points, resembles the Stalinist Soviet Union, and especially the foreign policy, which is actually was probably the major shift in the several years. And uh, the the foreign policy, uh, just briefly, are you uh, speaking about the attempt, as uh, was described by some, as Yalta II, of redividing the the world, how it was redivided by uh, Churchill and Roosevelt yes. and Stalin after World War II, and this kind of this one more reset on a global scale where Russia is once again given its sphere of influence. Yes, exactly. Kind of exactly. Everything started with uh, well. At least it, was, it became visual uh, since the annexation of Crimea, then events on the east of Ukraine, and all of that. Yeah, many Russian foreign policy analysts or foreign policy and diplomats, top diplomats, uh, repeatedly say that we need some new redistribution. So they actually getting back to the language of the middle of the 20th century. They are getting the you know, and this is actually, but middle of the 20th century was a period when Russia was Stalin's Soviet Union, and that's why it was so. Uh, interesting, you know, uh, we started our uh, conversation with uh, me saying that uh, history is the best language to, well, the only available language for Russian politicians to speak about politics. And we can see how Putin, President Putin, tried to invent another historical uh, language to speak about the Crimean annexation. Yeah, do you remember when he, uh, late in November, I think, uh, of 2014, uh, started to speak about the sacred uh, Hersones. Uh, well, he said that, that you sure. know, Crimea is a sacred place for Russians because uh, Russian Prince Vladimir was baptized there in the 10th century AD. And but some, somehow Russian Christianity traces its back now itself to yes, Crimea. Yes, and this is yeah. That was uh, and that was clear an example to uh, to suggest to provide historical language to explain what happened in the uh, year 2014. But of course, it was too far. It was too far, and uh, I, people in Russia probably just do not understand what Putin wanted to do. And but uh, on the other hand, the Stalinist uh, explanation: this is, you know, return to the 1945, return to the redistribution of of, of world, uh, was much more understandable, much more, much more clear. Uh, clearly, you know, formulated, and that's why, uh, you know, the Russian discourse get, was getting back to, to Stalinist. Instead of getting back to Prince Vladimir of the 10th century, they're getting back to Stalin's middle of the 20th century. And that's why these monuments uh, began to be erected in, in, in different parts of Russia. And that's why, well, what, what happened with this restalinization. But again, uh, this uh, uh, signing of the concept of memorialization of the victims of Stalin, uh, Stalin regime was a very clear message uh, that uh, Kremlin uh, is not happy about that. So Stalinism in Russia is, on the one hand, it seems to be a, a representation of the current political discourse, but on the other hand, it's still critical to Putin, critical to regime, and it's, uh, to some extent it's oppositional to the regime. And this is a you know this dichotomy. I don't know how to, to how to call it the situation. <laughs> All right. Well, um, in, in conclusion, a couple of areas that I wanted just to, uh, first of all, I wanted to touch on situation with Nadezhda Savchenko. Uh, uh, March 9th is uh, supposed to be a world like awareness day of her situation. Um, if you wanted to kind of 
say a couple of words about uh, her, that would be great. Well, uh, you know, the whole situation with Nadezhda Savchenko is, uh, well, to my, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I would say that they, uh, there was a, from the very beginning an, an unlawful situation. It's a situation when, uh, well, I, I, I'm not uh, in a position to judge uh, whether it was, you know, the events that incriminated to her took place or not. But I'm, uh, well, I see that there was a problem. She was a, you know, she participated in the, uh, in the ranks of Ukrainian army against the insurrection, uh, and she was taken in Ukrainian territory and uh, transported to Russia. From the very beginning, the whole situation looked very, very, in contradiction to the, any international or even uh, Russian internal domestic law. And this is a very, uh, well, strange and bad thing. And when uh, Nadezhda Savchenko went into uh, hunger strike, it, it became very dangerous for, actually it became dangerous for Russia, for Ukraine, for Russian-Ukrainian uh, relations uh, for, for many years to come. Because if, if uh, Nadezhda would die in Russian prison, it will be, you know, so bad, uh, you know, so bad event for, for, for both countries that I will, you know, I've, uh, I think that this will be the worst thing that it can happen in Russian, uh, in Russia today, in Russian politics today, or in Russian-Ukrainian. Do you think that people of Russia will think any less or more of Vladimir Putin if Nadezhda Savchenko is released, or is it just a matter of the right headline being put in front of people on the nightly news? Uh, it's hard for me to judge about the majority of Russian people. You know. it's, uh, but, you know, there are many people who believe to what is, uh, what is said on the TV or in the news of TV. There are very many people. But uh, on the other hand, uh, what, uh, whose uh, opinions are important? It's uh, the important uh, opinions of those people who can produce their own opinions, so often so-called Russian intelligentsia or intellectuals or people who are from, and this part of the society, which is a minority, of course, but this part of the society I definitely uh, follow what is going on with Nadezhda Savchenko, and there, this part of the society is very critical toward President Putin. And actually, this is a problem of the regime. Uh, you know, the majority of the people support the regime, but the majority does not form their own opinion. They just follow the opinion of the TV. And this, that, that minority that form the opinion of their own, that minority is definitely uh, very critical to President Putin, to the regime as a whole, and to the uh, Russian policy in the, in the Ukraine. And this is a problem for the regime, and, but this is also the source of the hope for Russia, I think, for the future. All right. Um, Professor Kurilo, uh, the one question that <clears throat> I wanted to end with, and my, I guess, one of the big reasons for doing this program is because I feel that what's going on in Russia is really such a good lesson for, well, for us here in the United States, but probably for other people in other countries as well. Um, what lessons do you wish uh, people from other countries would take away from what's going on in Russia? <laughs> You know, getting me back to Chadayev. Do you remember that, uh, you know, Russian philosopher of the first third of the 19th century who once wrote that Russia is a, you know, the, the only Russian role in the world history is to give lessons to other countries what should not be done. 
Well, and that's what this program is all about. <laughs> you know, so. Yes, it's Chiada <laughs> you know, almost two centuries ago. Yes. And, uh, okay, uh, still, uh, I, okay, I will start with uh, uh, saying that there are some lessons that uh, other authoritarian regimes are taking from, from what Russia is doing. And we, we, if you see, uh, like, on Turkey, and we see how Erdogan is copying in some of his policy moves, what uh, President Putin is doing. So there is a type of kind of authoritarian uh, study, <laughs> authoritarian learning from one uh, one, one uh, authoritarian regime can be a model for others. And this is a bad side of, of, of all of this uh, learning. On the other hand, well, Russia, okay, uh, if you want only the lessons which uh, should not be repeated or, you know, to, well, if there's some good lessons, yeah. that's a good thing too. But it just—it seems like they're harder to yeah. find. You know, I want to—I want to find good lessons. And the good lesson, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me not speak. Okay, I, I've told already about the bad lesson that authoritarians also, you know, uh, study uh, the experience of the of each other, the achievements of each other. But I would also say that there is a uh, lesson of, uh, you know, that people should be well. No, my, I will start with my personal feelings. That I, uh, we now live in very hard, very difficult times in, 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 from any point of view, from the point of view of uh, the uh, authoritarian, the regime becomes more and more authoritarian. Uh, we have uh, you know, the foreign wars, uh, to be, uh, Russia engaged in foreign wars. We have a deterioration of economic conditions on any scale. So we have a very difficult uh, situation. But on the other hand, I feel now a little bit better than I uh, even felt during the you know, so-called Putin's prosperity several years ago. Because now I understand that I am not alone. And this is very important. Very important to, to network to, to know that there are people who thinks uh, who you know, think similarly or close to what you, you are thinking it's very important to uh, to be on some you know on some side in the uh, internal domestic political dispute uh, several years ago it was uh, just unavailable for Russians because we were you know everybody was alone there was a state machine a state propaganda machine. And everybody who was in disagreement did not feel that he is a part of any any part of the society. And what happened in 2011 and 2012, when people went to the streets in Moscow, in St. Petersburg and other cities, uh, they just understood that they are minority, but they are visual minority. There is a big minority. And this is the people who are. And since that time, since 2011 and 2012, it's getting a bit you know, a bit easier to, to survive, a bit easier to have, to entertain hopes for the better future for, for Russia. And this is also the lesson. It's also the lesson to keep, just keep uh, networking, to keep, uh, you know, keep your political views uh, not hidden somewhere, not uh, taken at some, you know, uh, to some black day in the future, but just to share it and find the people who think in similarly. And this is a way to prevent some bad things to happen. You, you should organize. Of course, maybe it's not a lesson for Americans because they got all of those uh, lessons back in the 18th century. But for Russians, I think for many other uh, countries in the world, it's still uh, very actual and uh, very re relevant uh, advice. And I hope that this is something that we Russians also uh, learned already and will know for the 
future. Professor Corilla, thank you so much for being on okay, the program. Thank you, Yuri, for inviting me. Listening to 91.7 FM, The Edge, WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin, 